right, so I've only got a little bit of housekeeping today. I wanted to point out that I've actually started doing the short episodes like I've been talking about doing. And today's episode is actually the second one. If you haven't caught on yet, I'm calling it Gut Reaction. So there's a couple things I wanted to point out about this. First of all, the idea of the Gut Reaction series is that it shouldn't take as much time and research to actually do it. And that way I can respond more rapidly to current events as they come up. Again, the idea is that there's less research and history involved, and it's more of a wavetop response to something that's occurred. And the second thing I wanted to point out is that I'm going to continue to do the normal episodes that I've been doing all along. Those are the ones that take a lot of research and have a very detailed history of whatever the topic is I'm talking about and a very well-reasoned out, thorough explanation. I'm going to continue to work on those and try and get at least one out per month as long as I'm not on deployment. And then the gut reaction series is not going to be a timetable involved, but it'll just be responding to things that come up. And ideally, once something occurs, I can get the episode out within a week. So the long form episodes that I've always done, I'll keep doing them. They'll be 30 minutes or more like they have been. But my intention is for these gut reaction videos to be between 10 and 15 minutes. And the last thing I wanted to point out is that I know most of you listen to the podcast via audio podcast apps and not on YouTube. And that's totally great. I'm going to continue to put out all of my content on every app that I can find. But I just wanted to point out that for the gut reaction episodes, I'm actually going to make them into videos. Generally, my normal long episodes do end up on YouTube, but they just have like an image in the background and it's just the audio. And I'm going to continue to do that for the long episodes going forward. But for gut reaction, I'm actually recording video. And I'm going to actually try to make it good. I'm going to include video clips and graphics, and quotes, mostly depending on where else the media is covering whatever I'm talking about. So the audio version of the gut reaction episodes is going to be fine. There's, you're not going to miss anything from that. But I'm actually putting the work in and trying to make good videos. So if you're interested, maybe go to YouTube instead of whatever your normal podcast app is. Whenever you see an episode that starts with the words gut reaction. Anyways, that's all I have for housekeeping today. Let's get to the show. The views expressed in the show are those of the author and do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of the Department of Defense, Department of the Navy, or the U.S. government. On December 14th, District Court Judge Reed O'Connor of Texas's Northern District ruled Obamacare unconstitutional. Earlier this year, a lawsuit was filed by some 20 conservative state attorneys general. They argued that since the tax law passed last year reset the individual mandate penalty to zero, that it's no longer a tax. When the Supreme Court weighed in on Obamacare in 2012 for the first time, they ruled that the individual mandate was constitutional, but only as a tax. In this case, the argument goes, if it's no longer a tax because it raises no revenue for the government, then it's no longer constitutional. Judge O'Connor agreed. Well, that's fair enough, and I'll explain why. But the problem with the ruling is the next argument. The state attorneys general argued that the rest of Obamacare must also be unconstitutional, along with the individual mandate, because the rest of the law cannot be severed from the mandate. And Judge O'Connor agreed with this point as well. Now, before I get into the details, I want to be clear. Obamacare is probably the worst piece of legislation in American history. But the judge's arguments were based on weak legal arguments and will almost certainly be overturned. Let me explain. First argument actually does make sense. The argument the judge makes is basically this. In the Supreme Court case National Federation of Independent Business versus Sibelius in 2012, Chief Justice Roberts, writing for the 5-4 majority, rejected the idea that Congress could mandate health insurance under the Commerce Clause or the Necessary and Proper Clause. 
both of which are in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. He only upheld the mandate by essentially rewriting the law to interpret the individual mandate penalty as a tax under the General Welfare Clause, also from Article 1, Section 8. The key point in the question of whether or not the mandate is a tax, even with the penalty of zero, comes from Chief Justice Roberts' definition of a tax that he lays out in the majority opinion. He explains what a tax is and compares the features of a tax with the individual mandate penalty. His most useful assertion for the current case is this. He said, quote, The essential feature of any tax, it produces at least some revenue for the government, end quote. Last December, Congress passed a new tax bill. You remember the ones that Democrats claimed would only yield pennies for the middle class. That same tax bill reduced the individual mandate penalty to zero. The mandate still remains, but there's no longer any penalty for noncompliance. So since the penalty no longer, quote, produces any revenue for the federal government, it's no longer a tax as Chief Justice Roberts defined it in 2012, thus eliminating the entire justification for the constitutionality of the individual mandate in the first place. This makes perfect sense, and the judge is exactly right here in this case. The individual mandate is effectively gone already, but the Supreme Court should uphold this part of the district court decision based on the Supreme Court's own precedent. The second and more important argument, though, doesn't make any sense. The legal argument that takes you from the argument that I just laid out, that the individual mandate is unconstitutional if the penalty is zero, to the conclusion that the entire Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional, stems from a technicality known as severability. Judge O'Connor basically argues that the individual mandate is, quote, essential, and that Congress and Mr. Obama never intended for the rest of Obamacare to exist without it. He said in his ruling last week, quote, Congress stated many times unequivocally that the individual mandate is, quote, essential to the ACA. And this essentiality means the mandate must work together with the other provisions for the act to function as intended. All nine justices to review the ACA acknowledge this text and the Congress's manifest intent to establish the individual mandate as the ACA's essential provision, end quote. He concluded that, quote, because rewriting the ACA without its essential feature is beyond the power of an Article III court, the court thus adheres to Congress's textually expressed intent and binding Supreme Court precedent to find that the individual mandate is inseverable from the ACA's remaining provisions, end quote. Now, on its face, that sounds pretty good. But the problem is he's talking about the wrong Congress. He's right about the intent of the 2010 Congress and Mr. Obama, but that doesn't matter anymore. Law professor and strong critic of Obamacare, Jonathan Adler, encapsulated this point perfectly at Reason.com back in June. He said, quote, The cornerstone of severability doctrine is congressional intent. A court must offer its best guess on what Congress would have wanted for the rest of the statute if a single provision is rendered unenforceable. But this guessing game inquiry does not come into play, whereas here, Congress itself essentially eliminated the provision in question and left the rest of the statute standing. In such cases, congressional intent is clear. A court's substitution of its own judgment for that of Congress would be an unlawful usurpation of congressional power and violate basic black-letter principles of severability, end quote. In other words, the 2010 Congress's intent doesn't matter anymore now that the 2017 Congress has made their intent clear. The courts don't have to guess what the Congress meant back in 2017 when they passed the tax law. It's obvious. They threw out the tax penalty but left the rest of Obamacare intact. This obviously means they thought the ACA could stand without the individual mandate. It's clear that the 2010 Congress believed the individual mandate was essential, 
as Judge O'Connor says, but it's nonsense to conclude that under the new Congress, the individual mandate could be both completely ineffectual and essential at the same time. They can't both be true. That's just common sense. This is a really bad legal argument, and I'm sure Judge O'Connor knows that. His conclusion that the individual mandate is now unconstitutional based on the Supreme Court's own precedent is spot on. But his conclusion that the rest of the ACA must therefore be unconstitutional as well is clearly judicial activism and political hackery. And just FYI, the judge did not issue an injunction in this case, meaning that in the short term, nothing's going to change in healthcare services or insurance while the courts consider the issue. Look, there are plenty of reasons why Obamacare is unconstitutional, but severability isn't one of them. If the Fifth Circuit reverses Judge O'Connor's decision, it's unlikely that the Supreme Court is going to hear the case. If the Fifth Circuit upholds this ruling, then I'm sure the Supreme Court will overturn it. Thanks to President Trump's two new justices, the Supreme Court is solidly conservative now. But in 2012, it was Chief Justice Roberts, a conservative, who joined with four liberal judges to save Obamacare. He's still on the court with four liberals, so the same judges would probably overrule the severability ruling. So that's my gut reaction to Friday's ruling. But let me explain why, despite this bad ruling, Obamacare is still unconstitutional anyway. The main problem with Obamacare is Chief Justice Roberts' assertion in the 2012 case that just because a provision is a tax, that means it's constitutional under the General Welfare Clause. For a deep dive into the history and many interpretations of the General Welfare Clause, go check out episode 11 of the Unalienable Podcast. That episode is simply called The General Welfare Clause. I'll throw a link to it in the episode description. Long story short, the General Welfare Clause states, quote, The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts, and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States, end quote. James Madison explained his take on this clause in an 1831 letter to James Robertson Jr. He wrote, quote, With respect to the words general welfare, I have always regarded them as qualified by the detail of powers connected with them. To take them in a literal and unlimited sense would be a metamorphosis of the Constitution into a character which there is a host of proofs was not contemplated by its creators, end quote. In other words, Madison believed that Congress could tax and spend money to exercise the powers listed in the rest of Article 1, Section 8. And the general welfare part simply explained why they could spend money, not what they could spend money on. Alexander Hamilton explained his view on the general welfare clause in the 1791 report on manufacturers. He wrote, quote, The power to raise money is plenary and indefinite, and the objects to which it may be appropriated are no less comprehensive. End quote. He goes on to say of general welfare, quote, the phrase necessarily embraces a vast variety of particulars which are susceptible neither of specification nor of definition, end quote. Basically, he's saying Congress can raise and spend money to do whatever it wants. These are essentially the two opposing views on the tax and spend power of Congress. And this argument has been going on since the Washington administration. Now, I explain it more thoroughly in episode 11, but long story short, Madison is right and Hamilton is wrong. And here are a couple quick reasons. Reason one, Madison's main point is never addressed by any advocate of the Hamiltonian view. Madison, along with Thomas Jefferson, point out that if Hamilton is right, what would be the point of carefully listing all the powers granted to Congress in the rest of Article 1, Section 8, since this one unqualified and unlimited superpower would include all of those, plus infinitely more? 
Reason number two, Hamilton himself argued the Madisonian view in Federalist 83, three years before the report on manufacturers I just quoted a minute ago. Here he said, quote, the plan of the convention declares that the power of Congress shall extend to certain enumerated cases. This specification of particulars evidently excludes all pretensions to a general legislative authority because an affirmative grant of special powers would be absurd as well as useless if a general authority was intended, end quote. This is exactly the point that Madison and Jefferson make. Hamilton only changed his tune later when he was Treasury Secretary and trying to pass his pet projects. Reason number three, Hamilton didn't even attend the discussion on September 4th, 1787, the day the convention added the General Welfare Clause to the Constitution, and Madison did attend and participate. So Hamilton doesn't really have much authority on this particular question of construction at least not as much as Madison. The Hamiltonian view was rejected from the very beginning, and the Madisonian view prevailed all the way up through the Civil War. After that, it was a gradual shift towards the Hamiltonian view, but in the 1936 New Deal case, United States versus Butler, the Supreme Court gave its unqualified endorsement of Hamilton's view of Congress's taxing power, and it's been that way ever since. In Halvering versus Davis in 1937, the Supreme Court held that Social Security was constitutionally permissible as an exercise of Congress's power to spend for the general welfare. More importantly, the court disavowed almost entirely any role for judicial review of congressional spending power and supported the right of Congress to interpret general welfare any way it wants. So for over 80 years now, Congress has enjoyed unlimited tax and spend power and free reign to define general welfare however is most useful for them. So when the Supreme Court ruled on Obamacare's individual mandate in 2012, all they had to do was say the magic word, tax. It's a semantic loophole. If we call it a tax, it falls under the general welfare clause. And since there had been no recognized limits on general welfare for 76 years up to that point, there were no arguments to be made for limiting Congress's tax and spend authority. The Butler decision in 1936 was a political decision based on the politically convenient but obviously incorrect Hamiltonian interpretation of the General Welfare Clause, and the 2012 Obamacare case was based on the same logic. So, one incorrect Supreme Court decision led to 76 more years of bad decisions, which blew up the federal government to the size it is today, and eventually led to the incorrect Obamacare decision in 2012. James Madison was right. Just because something's a tax doesn't mean it's constitutional. Congress can only raise and collect taxes to carry out the powers explicitly enumerated in the Constitution. Congress was granted no authority in the Constitution to force citizens into buying a product. Tax or not, Obamacare's individual mandate is unconstitutional. Full stop. Furthermore, Congress has no right to be involved in health care at all. Their claim to this authority is also based on the General Welfare Clause. The Butler case erroneously gave Congress unlimited taxing power by misinterpreting the General Welfare Clause. Social Security was declared constitutional a year later under this unlimited taxing power in Helvering versus Davis. And because Medicare was an amendment to the Social Security Act, it is also constitutional, according to this erroneous reasoning. None of this is based on the text or original intent of the framers of the General Welfare Clause. It's all just politically convenient. For over 80 years, the Supreme Court has refused to rein in Congress's tax and spending power. That's why Congress is arguing over health care now. And that's why Congress is allowed to force us to buy products. It's not rooted in the Constitution. It's bullshit. 
Bottom line, healthcare is another federalism issue. By any fair standard, it's clear that the General Welfare Clause was never meant to be this unlimited superpower, since healthcare, along with Social Security and welfare and every other piece of the social safety net, are not powers delegated to Congress in the Constitution. They belong to the states as per the Tenth Amendment. So if you think government-run healthcare is a good idea, which it's not, then you're free to propose it at the state level. Unless we amend the Constitution, that's the only constitutional way to do it. Any attempt at the federal level is clearly usurpation, based on an ignorant or dishonest reading of the Constitution. Thanks, as always, for listening and supporting this show. Please be sure to leave your thoughts down below in the comments section or over at Twitter. That's at Michael Autry. All the links you need are down below. Thanks again. We'll see you next time. If you like the show and you want to help keep it going, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or YouTube, or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can talk about it on your own blog or podcast. Or if you'd like, you can support the show directly. You can do this by subscribing through patreon.com unalienable. Thanks again for listening, and thank you so much for your support of the show.